you're on our show, Journey of an Esthete, right now. And um, I'd like to do a little introduction before we start the discussion. Um, okay. Um, I am... I've been blown away by your body of work. It is, it is really, I mean, it actually goes back, as, as, you, as I said in the letter to you, um, I, for my f- first work um, I read by you was your book on Fosse. And at one time I wanted to do a whole episode just on Fosse. As you wrote the book on Bob Fosse. But as I later discovered, you're a major scholar of Hollywood. Um, your new book, uh, Oral History of Hollywood, with your mentor, Jane Basinger from Wesleyan University, is really a treat. Um, you're also the author of The Big Goodbye, about Chinatown, the movie, Polanski, and uh, uh, two great books on directors, Paul Mazursky and uh, A Splurge and the Kisser about Blake, Blake Edwards. And so I've read those, and I'm, and I'm excited to have you on the show and oh, talk, about all this, uh, talk about all this stuff. I mean, I sort of don't want to – before I forget, also, if you have the Criterion edition of Some Like It Hot, you did a wonderful, wonderful piece for that. Uh, Thank you. Louder. So uh, where did you want to start? Because there's so much to discuss. And I sort of feel like we can, uh, you know, start with Fosse and go to Hollywood or, or well, Fosse's part of Hollywood, certainly. But um, We can do anything, anything you want in, in, any, in order. any order you want to do it. Okay. So, so what comes to mind first? I think my first experience um, personally with Bob Fosse was seeing Cabaret as a child in, in the 70, early 72, 73. And then later seeing the um, first production, you know, with Gwen, Gwen Verdon, Cheetah Rivera production of Chicago and Lenny, I think. So that was my first experience. But when I read your book, I was impressed. Um, well, about two things, the way you uh, talk to people uh, in the worlds that you cover with great um, integrity and great sort of close reading, like, um, for example, your essay on, uh, this changes the subject slightly, but your essay on the movie 10 is like a close reading of Blake Edwards 10, which I think is kind, yeah. of, a, kind of an underrated movie, actually. I think it's one of his great, great, great movie. And um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And too. But what I'm saying is that, you know, when I read your Fosse book, I learned, even though I knew his work in theater and Star 80 and all the rest of it, there's something about your approach that I believe you developed as a, as a young writer of, of writing about um, the material in a way that's relatable, accessible, but also really intelligent and also really connected to important biographical stuff, like in your Mazursky book. Or, for example, in your, your book on Chinatown on Robert Town, um, Mr. Taylor, Robert Town's assistant there and things like that. So I'm just wondering when you started developing your um, – I don't know what to say. Your your your, your um, relationship to all this material or Hollywood um, was it was it was it Wesleyan before or was it something? That you... It was something I was always interested in. I was born in in L.A. Um, oh, yeah. and um, my parents weren't in the movie business, but a lot of their friends were in the movie business. So um, I got to sit outside of it and watch it. Yeah, and. Um, listen to people in the movie business talk about their work and talk about their lives. Um, And um, uh, I I early on understood that there was a divide between the reality of Hollywood and the working working world of people in the movies and the way that it was presented in the media, in books, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I thought, well, wait a second. There's always this... Why are these people not really 
taken seriously? Why are they treated sort of derisively by the New York Times, oh, especially yeah. oh, the East Coast? You know, the literary world is basically in New York, and yeah. um, why? Why does even Hollywood movies about Hollywood? Why are these things so? Day of the Locust right, right. Well, in their cynicism. Last Tycoon or, or look at it. Well, of course, it, what comes to mind is the way SOB was treated. Uh, and, well, yes, Bla- yes, Edwards, yes. The way Blake Edwards well, in general was treated. By, uh, by well, Blake Edwards. Edwards had something to complain about for sure. But um, in the case of SOB, that was a real specific instance of, of uh, Hollywood venality, which is, of course, real. I mean, I don't mean to say that... Uh, that um, Hollywood is is pristine, but it's like any other industry. Yeah, um, there are its good points and its bad points. In fact, I think it's better than most industries because look what it turns out. It turns out this thing that we all love, which is movies. We all we all agree on movies. Yeah, um, we all love movies. So I, I guess what you're saying is that you it was to put it in a kind of at a plain, homely way. You wanted to sort of set the record straight, or as you perceived it, growing up, and you wanted to sort of. Uh, put across this um, this one of the truths about Hollywood that you feel was being being um, misidentified or or, or um, uh, kind of uh, skewed a little bit in the, in the in the popular media and press, right? Yes, yes, yeah. That's that's sort of my ongoing project is to humanize humanize Hollywood um, um, and uh, and uh, ho- hopefully I've I've done it. I mean, in, yeah. in fact. It's so funny that this this last book I put out, Hollywood: The Oral History, with yeah. Janine Basinger. That's right. Um, a lot of the negative press. I mean, I got a lot of wonderful press, but a lot of the negative press was from people saying, you know, um, that he's rom- they've romanticized it, which is in fact not true. Because um, right. we have first person accounts from everyone. That's what the book is. It's just people who worked in Hollywood talking about it. But still, yeah. the critics, yeah. many critics, refuse to believe. Yeah. Uh, that a positive view of this industry isn't uh, sentimental or romanticized. So right. it's ongoing even today. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of connections. I mean, of course, the, your newest book with Janine Bassinger um, that you're discussing now is filled with just just anecdotes to put it to to uh, to uh, mildly. I mean, it's it's um, it's all it's from fifty plus years. Of the American Film Institute, and when I when I was reading, you're reading, you know, William Friedkin and and Melvin Leroy and Robert Town and all these folks just talking about what they experienced and what they did, and I, you know, the feeling I get is yes, there is a romantic quality to the book, but then again, Hollywood creates in part a romantic art form in part, um, but there's also, as you know yourself, there's a lot of um, no holds barred serious discussion of the shifts in the industry and the end of the studio system and the compromises and all the, you know, the stuff that you write about. So it's interesting, the reception, the reception you're talking about. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in going back to your first, what would you say the first entry into this kind of journalism or scholarships, both. Was it, was it um, the Audrey Hepburn book or does it go back before, the, would you say, uh, before that? or? Well, my first book was the book about Blake Edwards, which is... Ah, okay, yeah. Which is um, more of a um, a critical study than most than, than any of my other books. With that book, I really wanted to take a close look at Edwards' style, mainly how he used slapstick. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and because his use of slapstick was so sophisticated. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I really wanted to take that apart and sometimes go shot by shot. You did. So that book... You that did. book is is excruciating for a lot of people for reasons I totally understand. Not me. Um, that, see, but, <laughs> thank that, you. <laughs> that very quality is why you're on the show. That so that essay oh. on ten. I sort of read that. And I thought every every critic should write about films the way you write about ten. Oh, thank you. I'm serious, because you, you get really, and of course, it, you reveal what's so deep about the film. You know, uh, but I don't want I don't want to talk about that movie if you wanted to uh, some, from some time. But what like I was just doing there, dealing with the sexual revolution, you know, and the 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 consequences and the folly of it, and the the promise of it, the joy of it, and the the psychological bending with yep. Andrews, and uh, I just uh, yeah. So Edward, yeah, sort of. Uh, if you want to talk about ten or other Edwards movies, that come. Well, I'm really mind. happy you singled that one out because that I remember. I remember thinking, I'm really going to write this book so I can write about 10. That was really yeah. the centerpiece for me. So um, I'm really glad that came that came through. Uh, I, I, I really, you know, in, 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 in a masterpiece, you should be able to justify or revel in every every decision a filmmaker makes, right? I mean, isn't that what a masterpiece is, is yes. you... You go, oh my God! Every with every decision, oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! And that's that's really what I wanted to do with that piece on tennis. To just say, look at this! Look at this! Look what he's doing now! Look what he's doing now! Well, you, um, you did it, and that's also a film I should say that is is going to be is timeless. And it's funny. It's um, it's both capturing the late seventies really well, you know, uh, but at the same time, it's I've I've watched that film with very much younger people, and they all respond mm -hmm. to it. The they do. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Well, the thing about slapstick, which a lot of people resist, is that it is for everyone. That's right. You know, someone someone falling down uh, is, when done right, mm -hmm. is something that even a child can understand. And I yep. think that's partly why adults resist it when they do resist it, because there's something childish about it. But I, when they say childish, I say it's profound. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, we 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 love to see a pie hit the face. That's very very funny, and um, Blake sophisticates that thing. So I think you get the best of both worlds in his best in, in, in his best movies, like like Ten, for instance. It's a really grown up oh, yeah. way yeah. to tell uh, to 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 treat a, a what is often thought of as a real childish form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's. He found a way to to develop that. I think from his his own experience, coming out of early earlier art form, the earlier you know, mm -hmm. actually the forties and fifties. I would imagine you know, he's sort of a kind of a. a it's like he evolved and he developed this what you call the splurge. Yeah, uh, the splurge, and uh, kind of he developed that into into trying to how do I make something. Uh, meaningful and profound out of that, and yeah, and, he, and that's he, succeeds, right. he succeeds, and that's it's no accident that he's attracted to John Ritter. Of course, he's going to want to use John Ritter in um, Skin Deep, and uh, you know, and even uh, it's, it makes makes total sense. Or Ellen Barkin's uh, performance in Switch, which you I love her in that film. Amazing. Have you? Yeah, she's amazing in that movie. Yeah, she's amazing in that movie, and the sexual politics of that one are yeah. so twisty. They're they're. Um, there, there. It's still, it's still challenging that movie. Oh yeah, I think so. 
I actually think Switch is more interesting than Tootsie in a lot of respects, but that's that's yeah, kind of yeah. That's a, that would be a kind of controversial statement. Well, no, that's a great compa- that's a great comparison. I mean, I think in terms of the sexual politics, yes, it's 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 much more ambiguous in in Switch, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely, even more so than Victor Victoria. Oh yeah, well, it's actually yeah. it's actually you point out in the book it's common for critics to sort of in a way, disparage Victor Victoria for not being progressive or radical enough, which yeah. sort of shake my head and thinking, what a terrific musical and movie. It's They're mis- sort of missing the point. It's meant, I think Victor Victoria is meant to be a very solidly crafted, you know, kind of musical yep. with James yep. Garner and Julie Andrews. And I think if you're going to it, it was never his intention to be a, a radical. I don't think it was ever, ever his intention oh. to be a queer, particularly a queer show, as they would say, or I don't think. I mean, no. I don't know. Although those, no, those no. elements are in there, yeah. of course. Uh, no great filmmakers, I think, of are foremost interested in politics. They're really interested foremost in film. That's absolutely. That's why they're doing what they're doing, and that's why they're they're so great at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I, uh, I I'm not one of those who believes that a movie has to be politically right or wrong to be good or bad it's that's not what this is about absolutely it's interesting i want to go back to fossey because i what what would you say when you first are tackling is the words somebody i mean fossey somebody who excelled in on all these mediums he excelled at dance excelled at choreography invented he invented a style of dance he uh his film directing is, is on par with with any of the great film directors uh when you when you first began to tackle Fosse, did you start from talking to to the people in his life, Anne Reckin and and Gwen Verdon and folks like that, or how did you or did you what was your uh, kind of how did you trace that line of, of trying to write about? Well, you, you start you start with the work that exists that already exists on the shelf. So yeah. I read the other work on Bob Fosse, um, and uh, I knew that my point of view was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So. You start with what makes your point of view different, and you start investigating that. And you start interrogating that, challenging it, making it bigger, making it smaller. And you follow that trail through interviews, and um, it either gets stronger, your thesis, mm-hmm. or it gets weaker. And if it gets weaker, it's because there's another thesis that's getting stronger. So you follow that one. And you become sort of like a detective, and mm-hmm. interviews help confirm or deny um, what you what you know, you know. Um, and that's why that's why you talk to people. Yeah. It's not just it's not just well, tell me the stories about Bob Fosse. It's it, it's it's it, are my ideas right? You know, mm-hmm. um, am I seeing this guy clearly? Interesting. Um, Interesting. And uh, uh, with that. With that, you can really bring the person to life because they're, you know, people are more than just a collection of, of um, anecdotes. Like so, I said, there's, mm-hmm. there's something deeper that you've okay. got to, that you've got to get to, and and that really, that that's really one of the reasons the interview process is so Im- important to me. I, I would. Who yeah. were some of the first people you spoke with about Fosse? What did you get? I don't know. Probably be too late to talk to Patty Chesky, but I don't know. Maybe you were. Yeah, no, Patty wasn't around, um, unfortunately. Um, But I don't remember, you know, who were the first people I spoke to. I mean, I can tell you. um, Well, I think it was actually Catherine, Catherine Doby and Wolfgang Gladys Mm -hmm. 
who were very close to Fosse. Catherine was Fosse's dance assistant, and mm-hmm. Wolf Gladys was his assistant director and then later producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I spoke to them early on, and of course, Anne Ryan King, yeah, yes, I mean, yeah, she was, uh, I, I, I could not have, um, I would not have had the confidence to try to do what I did if I hadn't spoken to Anne Ryan King. Oh, yeah, you got to. It's, I mean, I really, uh, overall in your work, I'm impressed with the way you're able to connect with these folks and the way you're able to develop conclusions based on your on these connections. And I, and I sort of think... Um, for someone that's a little bit, say, someone in our audience who is not a Fosse maven or who isn't, well, if you had to sort of describe what makes what makes Fosse, you know, again, I said he he was an innovator. He created things in dance that hadn't been done before, and but also his the sexual politics in his films too, all that jazz and Chicago and and, and all the rest of it. What would you? How would you? What would you say? makes Fosse Fosse and what it's kind of uh, over the years and what, what, what comes to your mind when you, th- when you think about Bob I Fosse? think the, the I think better than I could say it would be someone should just YouTube Fosse da- any dance and just look at the work you know thankfully it's on YouTube so it can it can speak for itself um um humor it's humor it's it's sexuality mm. and um it's um, fear, mm-hmm. uh, um, and he's—he's—he's uh, um, uh, he's, he's also one of those Orson Welles type giants that um, right. uh, of the of the century, I think. Yep. You know, um, so just the size, the magnitude of the talent is unbelievable mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Though people should just just look at just look at the work is is the best thing I can say. Do you do you see and did you see him as you were working on your book? Um, things emerging or, or things changing slightly in terms of his concerns as as well. He has constant themes, but if you if you think about Sweet Charity to Star Eighty or Lenny, do you do you see or all that jazz, or you see sort of um, uh, something something happening there? Well, he gets life. darker. He gets. He gets. He's. He's always trying to um, push the envelope and do more and deeper than what he did in his last, his last film. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's one of the things that you, that makes following his work so exciting is you can see him growing from movie to movie. You know, not not every filmmaker follows or artist follows a straight mm-hmm. line in their yeah. development. Yeah. But Fosse's is a straight line, and um, um, it's it's he, he gets more um, he gets more confident stylistically, mm-hmm. and he gets he gets deeper emotionally, mm-hmm. um, and uh, deeper and darker. Yeah, that's true. Did you get a chance? I'm sure to speak to Teresa Carpenter. The, yes, the, I did speak to Teresa Carpenter, um, who wrote The Death of a Playmate. That's right. Um, the, yes, I did speak to her. I, I, I cannot remember what it was she said. <laughs> uh, but, you know, because I wrote this book 10 years ago. Right. But, yes, I spoke to Teresa Carpenter. Yeah, she was, she, well, that was such an incredible, incredible piece that she wrote uh, that the Star 80 is based on. But I... Uh, yeah. Do you mind? Do you mind telling the story of uh, what is it? Mar- Mariel Hemingway's first 
audition, if that's what it was, with Bob Fosse, and they're sort of sparring. Do you mind? Do you mind? It's just an incredible story because it gets. A- I don't remember. I don't remember it well enough to be able to tell it compellingly. Maybe you should tell it. It's fresher in your mind. <laughs> no, it just has to do with Mary Hemley putting her foot down with Mr. Fosse. Uh, and saying, oh, oh, yes, yeah. yes, no. Fossey was flirting with with Hemingway, you know, and um, and she see, this is not a. I can't. I don't know what how to make this a good story, but he was interested and she wasn't, and she said yeah. no, thank you. And, That's right. And yeah, but yeah, it was the way that she did it, which was so so incredible. But how did she do it? Remind, well, tell me. It, it, no, remind. Was, well, it was more her psychology, her attitude of like almost like able to. She was able to sort of. Um, jiu-jitsu or kind of kind of get that to not be an, even an issue and what how did she do it well that's how she did it is through attitude it wasn't anything particularly she said it was like she just basically was her commitment to doing the part she's like i'm gonna it's like a bullseye i'm gonna have this part this is my part and mm-hmm. it's kind of like you can see in your writing her and, and the interview with her is that she's her focus is so on the part and on the importance of this character that that cut everything else out. It's almost like that that single-mindedness in her part. You know, just like, you know, just like they wanted somebody that more looked like Dorothy Stratton than her, and she fought that mm-hmm. successfully. And no, I just think it's incredible. It's one of those stories of an actor. There are many stories like this, certainly in your oral history book, of actors getting something that's important to them or finding a way to, to kind of, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to me. Uh, yeah, I, I. She was a great. She was a great interview, Mariel Hemingway. Um, she's a great interview and a, a very cool, very cool person. So getting so getting back to your uh, book, the Good, Big Goodbye, which is a very lyrical. I know it's two years old now, but to me, that book is just fresh and as new as your oral history. What would you say? I mean, there's so much to talk about. Uh, certainly, that film, Chinatown. But what uh, what would you say? that you're saying goodbye to, what were these two Hollywoods or what was this thing that happened that Chinatown represents as new Hollywood? Or what would you, what would you say is going on there with all the, all the people, Polanski and Robert town and, 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 and you know, the, the well, it's, it's worth explaining that the, what we think of as old Hollywood is really characterized by the studio system when all the talent was under contract and those really were the golden years of Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, based based just on productivity, mm-hmm. experimentation, um, the attention of the audience. You know, America, all America was going to the movies uh, all the time, um, and um, the the. The, uh, like I said, productivity, the quality of the work. I mean, everything was at its height. And then when that ended, um, basically, as that took 20 years from beginning in the late 40s to about the late 60s, it it, it was a slow decline. Yeah. And what emerged from the wreckage of that system was what we call the new Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And for a few years, in trying to redefine itself, reconstitute itself out of this destruction, yeah. Hollywood uh, Hollywood was reborn. You bet and, yes. You bet it was. And, Particularly yeah. those three movies. So the three movies for me are the last – so Chinatown, I mean, putting aside Godfather, which you can't, but we're just putting that – set it off to the side. Yeah. Chinatown, Last Detail, and Shampoo, the How Ashby. Yeah. And then, of course, of course Night Moves by Arthur Penn. That's oh, Night Moves. Yeah, those are the years. So those are the kind of the yep. magic years. 
And I guess in, in this book, you talk a little bit about there being this shift when Jaws comes along, right, in Star Wars. And I guess there's a, yet another another shift, and I don't know. Or, or... Right, so you had you really had um, you really had five great years. Um, you could stretch it to six. You know, it gets progressed. It's still good at six. It's still good at seven years, mm-hmm. but it starts to decline, I think. Uh, and and that was really when the corporate interests really began to take over filmmaking. And so so that's what I think of as the last years of Hollywood. Yes. Um, and uh, it was a long time ago. Um, and and Hollywood, yeah. Hollywood just gets worse. It just it gets worse. Well, here, here's the thing that's funny about that. It's reading that and then reading the end of oral history – you really give a lot of time to these new these new folks like the Don Simpsons and Jerry Buckheimers and, and the yeah. uh, my, I mean, you really you give them their say. They they give long pa- passages where they they basically say what's important to them. And Don Simpson says, "I'm a 15 year old and yep. I'm a Camaro, and that's who I am." And my movie, he's very yep. very. Uh, I gotta get. Well, I, I look back now with with <laughs> real longing for Don Simpson. I mean, because oh, at least. Yeah. At least he was making the movies he wanted to make, and those movies have that integrity. They are movies for boys, yeah. you know. I uh, I don't see the movies. The, the movie uh, uh, now they don't even make movies for boys. I don't know what they make movies for. I mean, I just these are like movies made by machines for machines for, machines, for AI. Yes, that's what it seems yeah. like to yeah. me. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a that's a fair that's a fair criticism. I I sort of feel. Um, it's interesting. I'm thinking about um, going back to Polanski in Chinatown. I also had the opportunity to read Samantha um, Geismer's book, The Girl. Mm-hmm. You know that book, and I'm sure you do. Yes, of course, her. of course. Yes, yeah. So I, I was really impressed by uh, your – I'm trying to find the right words. So in, in your book on Chinatown, the big goodbye, it's sort of like the long goodbye, right? The big goodbye. Right, right. Um, you really give a balanced portrayal of Polanski, I feel, and you really grapple. You, well, you do. You grapple with the fact that he has a very, you know, certainly a, a, a dark side to him and a side that's not sure. pretty. But also you really reveal his genius as a filmmaker. And it's funny. Oh, good. Well, no, I went back. So I went back and we watched Chinatown uh, last week. And the shots of that, it's almost like a it, the, the precision of that film. Precision, yeah. It's almost like – it's almost – you're going to say this is an odd comparison. It's almost like an Ozu film or like a Brisson film actually in its precision. Even though it's a mainstream studio picture, it has that kind of – I understand what you mean. I yeah. understand what you mean. Those are all filmmakers who are in control. Yeah. Yes. Yes, even though they were after different things, they're all in control. And Polanski is at that level, I think, if not, if not greater. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. And so to read about his, you know, the Sharon Tate and the Manson murders, and and the yes, I sort of feel like there's a whole, there's something to that. So would you say, in part, Chinatown the film is a reaction to the Manson murders, among other things, or or you know. Well, I mean, there's so much of his life, and the the Manson murders are definitely in there. You know, I mean, he had his feelings about Los Angeles. He he knew he knew what it was like to have a woman, to love a woman, and have her be taken away. You know, killed. He knew what it was like 
not to trust a woman, uh, not to trust the system that he works in. Um, he, he knew what uh, futility felt like, um, having grown up in Nazi-occupied Poland. Yeah. Um, of course, I mean, but every great artist brings themselves to the work. This is why biography is interesting to me because one of the things you're doing is you're saying, well, where does this come from? Where does this thing come from? Right. Where does this come from? Well, it turns out it comes from human beings. So who are these human beings? How did they get to be who, who they are? You know, um, because if, if Roman Polanski made Chinatown, well, what, what made Roman Polanski? Yeah. Um, well, that's, yeah, partly it's the, it's not, it's, uh, the thirties. So I, I'm just kind of, I'm wondering too about town and his, and Taylor town and Taylor. Mm -hmm. What did you, what do you see differently now learning and talking with Mr. Taylor about as town as a writer, how those scripts is, you must surely you must see what changes for you in terms of either thinking about collaboration or. Well, I never got to talk to Edward Taylor. He died before I Oh, okay. even knew about his existence. But oh, I spoke to um, many people who knew him, including his his widow and, um, uh, you know, um, children, um, and um, got to look at his writings. Um, what did I learn? Well, I learned about Robert Town foremost, yeah. um, that uh, he had a longstanding collaboration with a figure he... Um, didn't acknowledge publicly, um, which um, which does go on in Hollywood. Um, yeah. um, but um, it was astonishing for me yeah. to hear that it was the it was it was part of the making of this great screenplay. You know, it's like finding out that. F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, had had uh, had someone working with him on The Great Gatsby. You go, well, whoa! It was, it was that's a, The Great Gatsby. Well, it, was a, it was a revelation to me reading this book. I knew nothing about this until. No, it was a revelation to me. I mean, it was amazing. There, no, no one, no one knew about this. Yeah. I certainly didn't didn't know about this. Um, I'm just thinking, uh, looking back on how it affects the, the script. I'm thinking about, well, the last detail. Well, it does detail is Daryl Ponsacam? Yeah. So there's, there's two yes. verses there. But I'm just wondering, there's got to be, wonder what Ed Edward Taylor gives or, or edits. or It's just interesting to me. It's almost like it's written by two folks, would you say, to some extent? Well, yes. I mean, it, it, it should, pe people, people have gotten screen credit for doing much less than Edward Taylor. Um, oh. But uh, um, uh, uh, it, it, this was, of course, no one was being exploited here. I mean, uh, Edward Taylor was paid for his work. He he agreed to the terms. Um, Robert Town never violated the terms. They had an ongoing relationship um, as friends and collaborators that went on and on. Um, uh, but you asked me what I learned. It, it, I learned something about Town that um, – that uh, he would never would never acknowledge Edward Taylor. Yep, that tells you something. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's interesting. It's interesting to me. Um, 
what com- what comes to your mind? So we have to. There's a lot to cover because you covered it a lot. Um, Mazursky is another genius. I think I feel. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say I'm that. Really, I'm so know, glad yeah. to hear you say that. So yeah, because I feel like people today are forgetting about Mazursky. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, they they did you know? I mean, with the exception maybe. I think the film they remember is Unmarried Woman because it has some relevance because of the feminism thing and yes, Joe Clark, yes. but that's it's like, you know, people forget Moscow on the Hudson and Harry and Tonto, you know, and Alex in Wonderland and Bloom and Love. And I sort of feel like, wow, these are these are all really incredible films. Harry, uh, I think so too. You you trace I think so too. you trace but you trace uh, Mazursky very much roots in his, I guess in his Judaism right and his. Um, also, as an actor, he's very much was an actor, right, and very much improvisation. We'll talk talk further because you, you, you know, Mazursky has an interesting life, one of a kind life. As a, as a, uh, yeah, but for for Mazursky, you know, it was it was for him all very much about the very much about the actor. I mean, almost almost exclusively about mm-hmm. the actor and, and the writing. Mm-hmm. And actors actors love Mazursky, and you know, he was really just interested. He was mainly interested in um, how how the changing political uh, environment affected the way the middle class, you know, lived, loved, loved, and lived. Right, right. Um, and well, Bob, Bob and Caltan so, and Alice is is the first. Bob, exactly, it's, right, Bob, right. Because Bob Caltan and Alice. I mean, if somebody came from another planet and asked me to to show them a movie about self help or about Esalen. I would show them that movie, the first thirty minutes of that movie. It's a, get, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, and it's you. Really it's one a, of my favorite movies. You get a sense that Mazursky's partly into this stuff, so that's what's interesting. It's not just a sort of a satirical condescension. It's like, oh no, no, no! It's it's a very, very warm, warm comedy, um, and. Um, and uh, I I loved him I loved him for that obviously you know um, it's very hard as Paul says is you know it's very hard to get people to laugh with compassion yes and and that's one of the things that characterizes his work these are warm yes. comedies um, and that's a very very hard thing to do it's very um, hard to do and that's why he he's a genius because he did it. And he did it so consistently. He did. It, I mean, it's it's. Um, he it's even in Willie and Phil. Yes, as flawed a film as that is in certain respects. Um, I still I watch. We watch it. It's, it's you know it's there. Uh, or the pickle. Or, uh, the, yeah, so. the pickle. Yeah. Uh, he, these are these are comedies without jokes. You know he he. Um, he would always say, I, I admire Neil Simon. I admire the ability to write an actual joke. Right. But that's not who he, that's not who he was. That's would, not what his movies were about. Would you say for him it's more the situation rather than the joke? Situ- situ- situation and character. I mean, obviously yeah. Neil Simon understood those concepts Oh, those concepts too, but the written joke is what some is, is something that he Neil Simon did better than anyone else almost. Yeah. But Paul, you'll never have a verbal. You, you never, you'll never be able to quote. It's very hard to quote a Mazursky movie and make someone laugh. It's it's going to be in the behavior. It's the behavior that's, the that's behavior. funny, it's, it's, you know. But I'm wondering um, if you feel he does he get that from his his many years as an actor or. It, it has deep roots. So it goes back to his beginning, I think. Right? Yes, 
then as and as an improviser with the Second City, Second definitely, City. yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that's her. He has her real actor sensibility, and that's that. You know, anyone that that is the actor's job is to behave, mm-hmm. and that's really what Paul was interested yes. in is is behavior and and comedies that that allow themselves to drift from comedy sometimes these movies are can be are very emotional paul paul's movies they have much greater emotional range than oh, yeah. say woody allen for instance oh yeah, uh, well, oh, yeah. Uh, i mean you know what comes to mind of course are the scenes of uh Joe Clayburgh and the therapist, the actual psychologist. That's right. Oh, I love those scenes. Those yes, scenes are, those yes. Scenes, is it true those scenes are largely improvised? Is that true? Uh, th- those scenes, a couple, yes, yes. Um, um, Paul would have uh, this the scene where Jill, they would talk, they would talk about it, and, uh, well, I should say Paul had it written. Yeah, and okay, yeah. he did have it written, and but he would say, you know, feel free to... Um, take this where you want to take this because the therapist Penelope Rusinoff was her name she she was an actual therapist that's right practicing psychologist what but, but, but so right right in a shrink in a shrink yeah yeah so yeah. um and Paul did that a lot you know he he cast Paul, uh, Don Muich as a, a another shrink who was uh, himself a shrink um so Paul Paul really wanted to get that Right, and I think he really did. I think Paul's mm-hmm. Paul's therapists are the greatest therapists in movies. I think oh, yeah. even more so than you know Woody's therapists. I'm just using Woody as a basis of comparison, not to put him down, but Woody Allen's therapists tend to be more jokes or punchlines. They're just yeah, they're not like uh, uh, the, the the guy in you just mentioned them, Bob Kelton and now is talking about uh, to Diane Cannon. Diane Kennan's getting all nervous about sex and asking her about child rearing, and that's just that's priceless. I mean, and yes, and these therapists they have characters. They do. They're, they're characters. These 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 therapists. Um, they're humans. They're human beings. And um, uh, you know, there's there's that's one of the other great virtues of Paul is that everyone is given their time in a, oh, yeah. in a movie, almost, almost like Frank Capra. And Paul was a big admirer of Capra's. Uh, I think there's a good comparison between Paul and Capra, right. actually, right. Um, so. especially in Moscow on the Hudson. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yes, uh, the, Amer- uh, the American uh, stuff in the 4th of July. Yes, the, the, yes, yes. Um, but, yeah, Capra was the same way. He loved an ensemble. He didn't want any... There are no stock parts in a Capra movie. Everyone has character from, you know, Gary Cooper down to the bartender, even yeah. if the bartender only has one line. Or his sidekick. Paul was the same way. Well, his, his sidekick talking about the HELOTs, right? Yeah. And meet John Doe. You know, you got to watch out yes. for the HELOTs. Or, that's you know, exactly just, right. That's exactly right. But it, it's, it's funny because uh, 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 the other thing that comes to mind, back to Mazursky, is. Um, Larry Hagman, so Harry and Tonto, the son yeah. his son Larry Hagman is devastating. Isn't it great? I'm so glad you you singled that out. That scene, that scene where they look at that advertisement for Swainers or something or singles thing. Yes, seventy. Yes, <laughs> like he got. He's like he's broke and wow, what a scene! I mean, it just, it just they could. To do a scene. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. That that is devastating. 
that is devastating. That's that's the sort of like enemies and love story. That's like a precursor of um, Paul Mazursky's ability to get to. When he gets serious, he gets serious. It's time, and he does. A, a, a favorite movie of mine, Enemies and Love Story, definitely, talk definitely about, one of Paul's greatest. If you don't mind talking about Isaac Bashevis Singer and the tran- and the uh, translation of that and thoughts on what what he did there or that. Well, Paul, this is a story about a a community of Holocaust survivors and their their love lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Pauline Kael called it a post-Holocaust sex farce, which is exactly what it is. And um, what Paul and um, his co-writer did, um, who was Paul's co-writer on that? Um, Is it Paul Mayers? No, it was... um... No. Oh, God, I should know this. Oh, yeah. Married to D- Roger um, Green? No, Green. No. Ro- oh, geez. Your, your listeners must be so bored. Roger, I forget his last name. Anyhow, um, uh, they, they had the brilliant idea to um, actually move up the um, – move earlier the introduction of the third woman. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just two women that he was deciding between it was three earlier on and it made it makes it much much funnier mm-hmm. so it's a brilliant move um and uh that that was their great their great structural insight to this story let's get it crazier faster yeah well that's a that's a decision that an artist has to make sometimes when you get a right when you when you change the tone or alter it you know you gotta you gotta we gotta do this you know and that, yep. I guess you would say that yep. makes all the difference in the end result, right? The the enemy's love story that we know with Lena Olin and and everybody is a result of that decision, right? It all goes. Well, yeah. What what part of what makes the movie? I mean, not just being a post Holocaust sex farce that would be enough, but you know, it's not it's yeah. not a farce if it's <laughs> if it's two women. You really need three, you know. That's right. You really need three to get it to make it crazy. Um, yeah, two could be a tragedy, but three is funny. <laughs> That is. It's kind of it's a connection with Billy Wilder and Lubitsch too. Of all that comes to mind. Well, I you know? what, what makes you say that? In terms of that, just thinking in that way, thinking in terms of comedically is what I'm saying. Well, he they 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 were all they certainly were all funny, all the heroes of mine. Yep. Um. What are um, your newest book? Of course, is with uh, Jean, uh, Jean Bassinger. She was a she is a mentor of yours, right? At, uh, oh yes, at Wesleyan. Yes, Janine. Janine is the greatest Hollywood scholar we've ever had, ever and ever will have. Hmm. Um, that's that's just I think just um, self evident. And yeah. if you if you read her books, it's it's clear. You know, hmm. she's. She knows more about this stuff and thinks about it um, mm-hmm. with more um, clear with, with 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 clearer thinking than anyone else ever has, um, mm-hmm. and, and probably ever and probably ever will, just by the fact of when she grew up, you know. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, so Janine is yes, a mentor and a friend, and mm-hmm. I would not think about she films the same way if I didn't know Janine, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm so I'm so grateful I'm so grateful that I do and a- anyone interested in film should read her books start you can start with the Star Machine which is the greatest book about Hollywood uh, about movie stars ever mm. 
There's no question she'll she'll talk she talks about the actual making of movie stars how that how that worked in Hollywood um and uh, it's an enormous you know people just think movie stars just happen you know that they're born it's very rare that a movie star is born you know a star is born as they say yeah. it happened in the case of Audrey Hepburn she was mm-hmm. born a movie star but most stars that we know of were made and they were made by a system that's right and uh, we don't have that system anymore and that's partly why we don't have movie stars so much anymore yeah that's probably true well I guess the ideal then I mean she, her, her work on Frank Capper for some reason, I really like her writing on Capra. Me too. Me some too. Yeah. On Capra, actually. Um, but there's a sense in which, um, you know, the te- talk about test screening or talk about. So people like uh, Frank Capra and, uh, you know, Melvin Leroy, or, or, or there, there was an interest in kind of universality, right? They were trying to make a film that would communicate with people, right? It was very important. And I sort of, I sort of take take that to be one of their major projects. And she talks she talks certainly talks about that. When you see in your yeah. new book with her, you trace the loss of that because in the, in the earlier pages, it's about the studio system, you know, and you have and you really see uh, that come up again. Uh, yeah, there was uh, uh, those those early filmmakers, no, early filmmakers, the filmmakers of the classic Hollywood uh, were really invested in reaching an audience. That's right. That's right. And um, which isn't to say they weren't um, artists, but they didn't think of themselves as artists. They really thought of themselves as entertainers, and it kept them honest. The the filmmakers of the new Hollywood, they start to think of themselves more as artists, and it becomes less about reaching an audience than it does about self expression. That's right. And that that cuts that cuts both ways. Um, it does cut both ways. I mean, what what comes to mind reading your work is that I get the sense that when Fred Zinnemann talks about it, as one passage where he says, "We really wanted to communicate." I remember the passage he's discussing how he how he made films, whether it's High Noon or you get it. The, the interesting result of that is that you actually get a film that's more balanced. Than, yes, than a film I think present, you're right. Than a film that presents just one side. I think I, I yes yes I mean keep in mind you know America America in those days was was shared shared was not as divided as it is now okay. you know and and I don't just mean politically I mean I mean because there were fewer media outlet mass media outlets in those days. Um, we actually shared more common concerns. We were actually brought together by the movie. So you really could make a movie that pleased, that pleased everyone. There were so fewer, there were fewer options. And today people would look at that as, you know, conformity. It's really not conformity. It's really, it's really more about faith, and I don't mean in the um, religious sense. Well, I really mean. Yeah, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, conformity is not the word; it's solidarity. Actually, it's a, solidarity it's a, it's a, is a, better. It's yeah, it's actually a very '30s, '40s um, concept. Actually, I think you are so right, and that's and and that's partly why the movies were so powerful in the '30s and '40s because America had that solidarity, you know, between the Depression and World War II. So there really was an audience 
that you could play to, an audience that, that was real and understandable, and the audience needed the movies because there was no television, you know? Um, and, and so it was a real happy relationship between communicators and the communicated two. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to think about that. Is it, it, these are the virtues we're discussing now of, of that system. I, if you fast forward, of course, to someone like in How Ashby or uh, doing a movie like Shampoo, which I think is kind of underrated. I think it's. Um, I mean, I love sh- I love shampoo, I love shampoo but, but but again, you know, yeah. You, know, yeah. you think who is this movie for? Exactly. You know, if, if, if you think of yes, yeah, it's a different milieu. It, it's much yes. more about the people or the kind of the. Um, well, this brings me to mind. I'm sure you've seen the video. Well, you may have been there in person with Alan Himes' presentation on all that jazz. The editor. Well, I know. I mean, I don't know which. I don't know if I was there, but I know Alan, and yeah. he's a great. Uh, he won the Oscar for all that. Jazz. Definitely, yeah. But I happen to have a, a, a part copy from a li- his analysis of all that jazz is a little. So he he seemed to be saying that all that jazz is, is kind of has a ne- is nihilistic. Uh, hmm. What he says in this in this long piece, of course, he worked on that film. Very, it's a very yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm you know I see all that jazz is actually a, a a film. You're gonna think this is crazy. A film of of a, a film of uplift or a film of transformation. I I I think it's absolutely. I think it's absolutely both, and that's its oh. power. You know, I mean, look, the, we know we know the last shot, so I don't want to give that away. But yeah. Um, I I think it's really two things that movie. It's mm-hmm. it's it's. Fierce, it's yeah. fierce, and it's it's joyful. It is, yeah. You got to change your ways, it says, right? You got to change your ways. You got to change your but, ways. Uh, you're, 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 yeah. you're gonna, what's the other song that you're, you're going to... Who's Sorry Now? That's right, Who's Sorry Now? Who's you're Sorry Now, now? yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, he learned too late. He learned too late. Yeah, Joe Gideon or, yeah. Yeah, Joe Gideon, well, Joe Gideon, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Joe Gideon, yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I just think, um, what was the first Fosse movie you saw? If you had to, you know. I think, I think it was all that jazz. I think it was the first Fosse movie I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time I saw it. Yes, I, I was in my parents' house. It was I was rented it on VHS. That's right. But it wasn't. It wasn't until I saw it again at, in Janine Basinger's class mm-hmm. in college mm-hmm. that I really understood what this was about and understood what Fossey was about. Mm-hmm. What was the first Mazursky film you saw that you remember? Bob, I would say it was Bob, Carol, and Ted and Alice. Okay. Um, which is my favorite, I think. Or, 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 um, or, um, Enemies, a love story. But Bob Carroll, and Alice, I saw that and I went, whoa. Yeah. There's something else. Something else is going on here. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of the older classic directors, what were some of the first? So if you you had to, Lubitsch, what would be the first Lubitsch film you saw you've never seen? Um, It might have been Shop Around the Corner. Right. Uh, If it wasn't, that was in a theater. I went to see that at Film Forum in New York. I remember going to see that. That's where I saw it. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> same screen. Yeah, we could have been there together. Could have been there together. Yeah. Well, Film Forum's still going strong, right? Some. I yes, they I'm are. Sure. Yep. Yep. What are some other theaters that are going strong that you would you would say you know this is Film Forum and the. Well, we have, uh, thanks to Quentin Tarantino in L.A., we have the New Beverly. New Beverly. Yep. Um, we have the Cinematheque in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the Academy Museum has a beautiful, a couple of beautiful theaters here. Um, but I, I don't think the theatrical experience will ever go away. We, we will lose theaters, mm-hmm. um, but um, we will we will... We will. Oh, there's the Metrograph in New York too. I love the Metrograph. Uh, well, that's, yeah. that's a personal favorite. That, that, that's um, just because I like the kind of stuff that they show. It's a little more. Ah, uh, yeah, they they do. They have great taste. Um, great taste. Um, but yeah, no, the movie, the theatrical experience will never go away. It's going to be. It's going to shrink. But yeah. we're always gonna. We're always gonna have it. Right. What's a what's a thing about cinema in general, not just Hollywood, that you when you think about you see it now, having just finished this massive great book on its history, oral history of Hollywood, from when you were first writing on Blake Edwards some years back. What is something that you say you changed your mind about or see a little bit differently now? Whatever comes to your mind, maybe re-examine something, or maybe you know whatever comes to mind about. Um, uh, are they about um, about? writing this book about um, right, what did I see differently um, well I, I really it, it was really individuals that I learned to see that I saw differently in this oral history because the story the rise and fall of Hollywood I knew going into it, mm-hmm. um, but but reading closely the interviews of someone like Charlton Heston were eye-opening to me. Oh. You know, I I never took Heston seriously, and reading his interviews were just thrilling. I mean, he's an absolutely great reporter and a bright guy and mm-hmm. thoughtful about movie making. Oh, yeah. uh, his description of I mean his his. His monologue about touch of evil is just is like so one of the best views of Orson Welles you can you can get that I've ever seen. So it was individuals that I that I learned about in you know we we read three thousand of these things and and they're very intimate and and so you 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 learn about the speakers but the the arc of Hollywood history no I I knew that going into yeah. it. Well, that's known. I mean, you know that as a scholar, of course, and you're. That's. Uh, I guess I was just wondering about. Uh, we always change our. All of us, sometimes unconsciously, without full awareness, change our mind about all sorts of things in the arts. You know. Yep. Sure. Music, sure. You know, maybe a movie that you sort of dismiss. Like, look at the reexamination or the rehabilitation of Ishtar. I don't. You know, that's just yeah. obviously. But though, maybe some people haven't changed their mind. Maybe some people still. Well, do. I've always been a fan of the first half of Ishtar. Definitely. Right, right, right. When they get to Ishtar, it comes ludicrous, but. <laughs> Uh, when 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 they're struggling songwriters, it yeah. is so perceptive, fresh, <laughs> funny, smart, yeah. heartbreaking. Um, definitely, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just think definitely that's the world. It seems like the world changed us mind a little bit about that. Or, or I'm very glad. I'm. I'll be very glad if that's true. Or Mikey and Nikki, or you know. Or, oh, I love Mikey and Nikki. I always loved Mikey and Nikki. Yeah, yeah, and of course, Heartbreak Kid. 
yeah. one of the greatest comedies ever made. Yeah. yeah. The great Elaine May. Did she work on this yeah. book to Tootsie? Is that true? Yes, of course, yes. She did a rewrite of Tootsie, and uh, she she never liked to have a credit... To, to, to get credit for her rewrites because it's not her work. She right, right. can't control it, so she doesn't want her name on it. But of course, she took a great paycheck and um, yeah. and made major changes to the to the movie that that helped it. What were those changes that you? Oh man, well, I mean, there's she she added the character of uh, Bill Murray. Really? Um, yeah, mm. she um, she. Um, Really gave character to um, Terry Gar, yeah. the Terry Gar part, and um, a lot of the one-liners um, are are hers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Terry Gar character really is classic Elaine May. It it is, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I had the opportunity to to meet both Stanley Donen and Ellen Elaine May at the Harvard Film Archive when they brought. It's a bunch of films. Oh, my. Yeah, it was great. One of the things that emerged in that, when they discussed Mick, Mikey and Mickey, is that that's very much based on, on biography. Because ev mm -hmm. because evidently Elaine May's family knew mafia people in Chicago. Again. Right, right. I remember hearing that. It's interesting. It's interesting. I had no idea about that. You there? I'm just chewing. Oh, you're chewing. What are you eating? I'm just chewing. I just took a, a a whole cracker in my mouth. What is it? What are you eating? I put some cheese and I put some good. salami on a cracker. It sounds good. Oh, it's good. It's so good. You're in Los Angeles right now, right? Yes. So do you yeah. do you go to some a lot of the same haunts that Mazursky went to, like the farmers market and the delis? And well, different. Um, I mean, are you able to? Let's what, see. What, um, there's a lot of great. I used to go to the farmers market. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I still go to the farmers market, but I don't go to their coffee table. Right. right. To their coffee group. Right. But yeah, the farmers market definitely, and different spots around Beverly Hills, of course, okay. near where Paul, where yeah. Paul lived. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. of course, you go to Edmund's bookshop. I'm sure and. Uh, I was I was just there the other day actually. Yep. Were you giving a talk yep. or were you buying a Larry Edmonds? Larry Edmonds. What were you what was going on? You giving a talk? Well I just I just no, no, no. I just I just popped in with some friends. Let's yeah. let's see what's going on over here. I found some incredible books at that place. Incredible books oh I'm sure. What what have you found? Well, mostly, mostly um, books about directors or by directors, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I found the first mm -hmm. edition of, of Frank Capra's name above the title there. Okay. Because for a time, that was very hard to find. It was a rare book for a time. And, you know, some books on Antonioni and, you know, this Monica, you know, Monica Sterling's book on Visconti. I think it's out of print now. Uh, um, I think I have that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That. And a, and a first edition of James Monaco's American Film Now. Oh, cool. That's a cool book. It is a cool book because it's got That's a cool of, book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what do you think? Uh, um, I just, I guess my question is that a lot, lot happening in Los Angeles now are changes. Certainly, that's something that's on, on people's minds, right? People, writers and filmmakers and 
There's a lot going on there, right? I mean, well, what are you referring to? In general, just the changes, both you know, politically, ecologically, you know, just um, you know, just as, a, as an evolving city and just changing in twenty twenty three and a new year, and um, it just seems it seems like it's something that's uh, it's noteworthy. Yeah, I don't know what you mean about the changes, but to me, I live in Laurel Canyon, and oh, okay. Laurel Canyon is pretty much the same. Well, thankfully, yeah, th- <laughs> right. Thankfully, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thank you. I, I really, I really do have to go get get back to work. But um, it was really thank you for thank you for all of these great questions. Thank you, Sam Watson. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, and um, uh, yeah, be well. Thank you for doing this. Yep. Bye bye. Bye-bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.